Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard McLean. And I'm Ed Goble. And this is Please Leave a Message. This will be Season 3, Episode 8, and overall this is Episode 37. We are called Please Leave a Message because we do have a phone number set up that you can call. The number is 801-SKETCH-1. That's 801-753-8241. You can call us. You can leave us a message. We like to hear stories. We like to hear questions. And if you do call and leave us a message, then you can be on the show with us. You can also find us at pleaseleavemessage.com. Anything that we talk about that's a visual or something that we're talking about that's something you might want to look at, I'll post pictures on Instagram at messagepodcast. Or if you want to send us an email, you can contact us at pleasepodcast at gmail.com. I just got Top Gun on Blu-ray. Mm. The new Top Gun Maverick trailer dropped. Did you see that yet? I didn't see that yet. So it's a movie that I heard they were going to make a second Top Gun. And I was just like, mm. oh boy, everybody's just jumping on the 10, 20 year later sequel bandwagon mm. and trying to tap into the nostalgia market. And some of them are good and some of them are not. And I liked Top Gun, but it wasn't like one of my like, oh, I have to see it kind of movies. And then I saw the trailer <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that actually looks really good. <laughs> And yeah, like the first one. As you can see on my wall here, I'm quite the fan of movies. Mm-hmm. And somehow, in my 20 plus years of collecting films, I had not ever purchased Top Gun. Wow. Yeah. There's <laughs> all kinds of 80s stuff and all kinds of nerdy. I hopped on uh, the internet to see if I could get a copy. I usually check and see if a, I can get a streaming copy cheaper than a physical mm-hmm. copy first. And the price difference wasn't all that different. So I was just going to buy a Blu-ray. And then when I searched for it, I found out there's a 3D version, <laughs> which that kind of blew my mind. So I bought that because this little TV here is a 3D TV. And I watched the first scene of it this afternoon when I got home from work. And uh, <laughs> it was pretty cool seeing all that jet stuff in 3D. Man, it's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, I don't remember a whole lot from it. I just know that I liked it when I saw it, but that was a million years ago. So. Well, I watched it, pay, uh, let's see, it was probably within the last five years I watched it once. Mm-hmm. And the thing that struck me when I watched it is how much practical effects there were, just because of the age of it. Mm-hmm. They didn't have CG at the time. And so there weren't, like, all of the the exterior shots of the planes, except for some of the like the close-up actor ones. It was all like mm-hmm. real footage of planes and stuff. And it, I was struck by how how gritty and real it just was and how mm-hmm. grounded it was compared to all the plastic CG that we get to view these days. I was really hoping when I heard they were going to make the sequel, I was like, well, probably won't look as good because they'll probably use a lot of CG stuff for it. Well, but things are getting more and more realistic with all the deep fake stuff they're talking about <laughs> and all the... <laughs> Deep this and deep that. They are. <laughs> I found, though, that as an animator, mm-hmm. when people are going, oh, it looks so real, it doesn't to me. Oh, but what I thought was awesome is to hear about the Solo movie, how somebody took um, Harrison Ford's face and pasted it on top of the other actor's face. Okay. So, like, you know, to have, like, the real 
like Han Solo in that movie. That's oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the deep Somebody's, fakes. The deep fakes yeah. are kind of cool. Um, but for me, I don't. I don't know how it is with other people because I've watched a few of them, and I, I don't know. Just to me, there's still something. They're not quite there. Yeah, you're right. But just give it a six months. <laughs> uh, I watched a really cool video the other day. They took. Um, did you ever see? Uh, it was the Mummy. It was the third Mummy movie, mm-hmm. the Scorpion King one, mm-hmm. and that horrible, horrible, horrible CGI at the oh. end with the rock. Yeah, it looked awful. And so there's mm-hmm. these guys that do. Um, they they run a little special effects house. Mm-hmm. I think is what they do. And uh, so they do these videos on YouTube. And what they did was they redid that scene. And uh, so they they fixed all the problems with the with the CG and actually made it look really good. And and that's how they redid the face of the rock is they they used a deep fake mm-hmm. technology to replace the head that was on there because he did that movie The Scorpion King. So they had that whole film to reference uh, mm-hmm. for the faces, and it was actually it looked really good. I'm like, man, I want to copy that off the internet and and insert it into my DVD copy of it because <laughs> it looks so much better. No doubt. I've I've done stuff like that before. I I like to goof around with special effects and stuff, and so I have I've I've uh, taken movies and edited them for my own personal use. <laughs> well, what I think is awesome is how they they were taking the old '60s Star Trek and replacing all the the special effects on it. I don't know if you've seen those. Oh yeah, the the yeah. remastered versions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have seen some of those. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if they said they were going to do that with the original Galactica or not but oh, yeah. that'd be but I have I have the original Galactica on Blu-ray I have I have the uh like the the TV movie like the thing that they introduced the show with mm-hmm. but I I haven't watched the series since I was a kid Yeah I'm not all that impressed with the newer series but the old series is one of my favorite things I always did enjoy that one. It's made by the same person that made Buck Rogers. Okay. And that's probably yeah. why I always got the two of them mixed up when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm like, how did I ever get those two mixed up? They're like so different. I think his name was Glenn Larson. Okay. He was a member of the LDS Church. Okay. Or I should say Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Oh, and I was saying about Top Gun, though. I saw Mm -hmm. they did an announcement at Comic-Con, which was Mm -hmm. this week. And somewhere, somebody had said that most of of it was real. They didn't use CG. Mm -hmm. So they they worked with the Navy, and they got real planes up in the air. And so that made me really happy. Mm -hmm. I I, I like 3D. I'm not not anti-3D or anything. I you know, I've been, I'm an animator for Pete's sake. And so I really like the technology. I saw a thing about it the other day where it was talking about, there's so much demand now that there's not enough animators to really, truly fulfill the need. Hmm. And that's why some of the older CG actually looks better than the current CG. Like the original Jurassic Park still stands up. looks hmm. great, you know? So that was CG? Uh, a lot of it was. Oh. They used they wow. had they had some really big robot dinosaurs that they built, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of CG shots in it as well. It's funny thinking about the way that they did that because it's it's like ancient technology now mm. as far as the way they had to put the models together and put the textures on them and stuff. It's just it's a completely different method that you use now, but it's still it holds up really well. I went and saw mm. it when they had that limited edition. Oh yeah, in the IMAX. 
in 3D. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. I enjoyed that. Yeah, I had it on VHS, but not. I never went to the or did I go to the theater? I don't know. It's too long, too long <laughs> ago now. I remember I I did see it in the theater originally, and I remember my dad took my sister to it, and my sister fell asleep watching it mm-hmm. at the theater. I'm like, how can you fall asleep? That was such an exciting movie. So right. I thought that was funny. Well, they, they announced a bunch of titles from the Marvel Phase 4. That looked what pretty cool. What was it cool. that I heard from that? Some about a, a martial arts guy? Oh. Shao Chi? Shao Chi or something like that. Something, yeah. I, I don't know. It's but not a character I'm familiar with. Yeah. But so. I guess he's not supposed to have any superpowers. He's just a martial arts hero of some kind. Oh, okay. Or, yeah. The funny thing about... I've, I've loved the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I've enjoyed almost every single film. And mm. and I was a big comic book collector in high school, but I wasn't a big Marvel comic book collector. I picked up a few here and there, and I always felt like I fell asleep reading them. And yeah. So I love Spider-Man. I think Spider-Man's an awesome character. He has a great cast of villains. But every time I tried to read a comic, I, I was bored. Yeah, I liked the the 80s um, cartoons with Spider-Man and the... So I don't even know what they call Spider-Man and his, his amazing friends? Yeah, that was the one that had, like, the Firestar Firestar. girl and Fire, the yeah, Iceman and, yep, guy. That's the one I watched, What was too. the other one? I, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I enjoyed that. I've never been into comic books, really, but I am real nerdy for, you know, sci-fi. <laughs> have you seen the new Picard trailer then? I have not, but I saw a website that had it on it today and I tried to play it and then I realized that it was time to leave work and I couldn't I oh, didn't have okay. any time. Well, they they had like a little mm-hmm. teaser trailer a few weeks ago and mm-hmm. I was it was one of those things where like I'm really excited about this, but if they don't do it right, it could be really bad. Mm-hmm. And then the trailer today kind of gave you more of an idea of what they were doing with the story. I thought it or at least the first the thing that was on the screen showed like one of those Borg cubes. I don't know if that had yeah, anything to do with it. There looks like it looked like a Borg cube under construction to me. Hmm. So are they coming back? <laughs> I I don't know. Um, Seven or nine was in the trailer. Hmm. So there's a girl in it, and he's trying to help this girl out. Hmm. And uh, there's some storyline interaction with Data, but Data's been shut down for years. Hmm. He, like, saved Picard's life but lost his own or something. Hmm. But I think, this is just my guess. I'm, my guess is that the girl in it is Data's daughter hmm. from that one episode. So Yeah, there's too many of those uh, next generation ones. I can't remember them all. <laughs> I'm currently watching uh, Voyager with my kids. Hmm. We're on the, I think we're, there's seven seasons. I think we've got four left of season six and then the last season. So... And that's one that I never watched because it was always on a channel we couldn't pick up when it was on. Yeah, I liked television. a lot of the Voyagers, but the Deep Space Nine kind of made me, I don't know, kind of put me to sleep. Oh, really? Yeah. Deep Space Nine was my absolute favorite. Really? Yep. Hands down. <laughs> absolute favorite. <laughs> okay. I liked all the political intrigue. <laughs> Maybe I'm weird that way. But. I don't know. It just The thing with it for me is that it's just a space station going nowhere. And, you know, and that's and what I thought when they first launched the, it. You know, the, the, a lot of the storyline has to do with everything that happens with the wormhole and, you know, mm-hmm. people coming through the wormhole and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Yeah. But teach his own. Yep. Yep. I, yeah, I, I really, I love Deep Space Nine. It's it's still my favorite. But I like, I've like i liked all of them so far that I've watched. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I haven't watched, uh, I never watched Enterprise. Oh, I love Enterprise, uh, except when they started to get towards the later seasons where they had like all these, I don't know, insect creatures and stuff. I, I don't know. Hmm. wasn't really into yeah, that. Yeah, I never, I didn't watch that one. And uh, I haven't watched the new one yet that's, uh, yeah, um, that's behind the paywall, the CBS All Access. Yeah, I haven't watched it either. I haven't watched it. I figure I'll get my kids caught up to that point and then we'll pay for a month and just binge watch everything. Mm-hmm. So. I just figured that the if I waited, I don't know, five years or something, it would show up on Hulu or something. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, the one I really like, the series I really like that uh, now is um, The Orville. Mm. Yeah, I watched some of that. I... <laughs> I don't know. It, it it was real funny, but I, I don't know. There was, I got about three or four episodes into it, and then I just, I don't know. Give it a really. little more, because I, I think what they did, because I was worried it would be like the family guy in space. Hmm. And uh, there's a little bit of that, but they didn't push the humor so far over the edge that it was off-putting to me. But they've had a, several episodes that really reminded me of the original series, hmm. where they were just kind of thought experiments, and they were like, well... And then, and they're looking at society and they're like, well, what about this? Mm-hmm. And kind of make you think a little bit. So I thought that was kind of cool. I just read today that for season three, they won't be going with Fox exclusively. Mm-hmm. It's going to be on Hulu. Fox couldn't give them enough money for the stories, for them to pull off the stories that they want to tell. Fox just didn't have enough money or time. And so they went with Hulu because Hulu could give them enough money to actually realize what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, I'm really excited about it, actually. That sounds a lot like what happened to The Expanse. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't seen that That's one. That's a really awesome series. It was on Sci-Fi first, and now it's on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have Amazon. I, sh- I can check it out. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. Very cool. All right. Uh, well, Ed, tell us about yourself a little bit. Well, I'm a computer programmer for a living, and I program in the C-sharp language, and I do what's called React and some other technologies like that. I work for a subsidiary of the University of Utah in genomics, or at least that's, you know, I, I work with geneticists and bioinformaticians to create software that they use, and, you know, it's a lot of genomic analysis type stuff for cancer and whatever, you know, that they're doing DNA tests for and so forth. Okay, well, cool. I did yeah. I did a C sharp class in college, and I think I barely passed. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, mm-hmm. my dad's a programmer, mm-hmm. and so at one point I had aspirations of being a programmer. And I remember I goofed around a lot with uh, Basic. I remember oh, writing yeah. stuff in Basic. When I was in college, my first time around, they offered a class called Java for Artists. Because mm. I was in the art department, and mm. they, but they were trying to kind of get us a little more technologically... Savvy? Or, yeah, savvy. Because yeah. we did you know stuff with 3D animation and Photoshop and all this stuff. We were doing mm. a lot of stuff with computers. And so they were trying to get us a little more uh, into the, the coding side of things. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't think that teacher really knew how to teach artists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it would be tough to figure out how they cross, or I mean, how where they cross over. But I did work for a company where I had a contract with them once that I was driving plotters that created big 
you know, huge sheets of graphics for like wraps for cars and stuff. And they, it was, those plotters were being driven by Adobe Illustrator. Okay. And so Adobe Illustrator had an API that I was hitting and then I was interfacing with those plotters. Okay. And there was like a SQL Server database or something like that that I was talking to with that. And yeah, so I've done lots of projects like that, but that's the only one that really crosses over into like art, you know. Yeah, the uh in fact, the only reason I passed the class is because <laughs> I I talked my dad into taking the class with me. Now, he's a programmer, but he's kind of an old school programmer. He <laughs> mostly has worked on what was the it was Basically, IBM uh, mainframes. Oh, yeah. Probably and COBOL and it was Fortran. Actually, and uh, RPG. RPG, okay. was the programming language that he worked with the most. And so he hadn't actually... He wanted to get into the newer uh, object-oriented programming, <laughs> but he hadn't done it yet. And so I, I talked him into taking this class with me, and he was frustrated. He was so frustrated with that teacher. Like, halfway through the class, he just gave up. He's like... I don't need this grade. And he just stopped working on it. But because mm-hmm. he was in the class and I could ask him questions, I managed to finish all my projects. They didn't all work super great, but mm-hmm. they all worked. Yeah. And so I managed to pass the class, but my dad was literally, he like programmer for 20 years. And he's just like, screw it. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> finishing this. This teacher doesn't know what he's talking about or doesn't know how to teach people. Yeah, that would be tough. I mean, I, I started out in basic in junior high school, um, Various flavors of BASIC, Atari BASIC. Yeah, the Commodore one I remember Basic. was GW BASIC. Yeah. I never really used GW BASIC, but I went from Atari and Commodore BASIC to Visual BASIC. Like the, I think it was like the VB4 version back then. And then I went to VB6 and then, you know, other Microsoft things after that. Now I'm getting into the Node and React stuff. You know, it's the big thing right now. Yeah, I don't even know what that stuff yeah. is. <laughs> but there's there's a lot of stuff going on like that. I keep trying to do that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. all throughout college, both the first and the second time I went through it, I would take like coding classes, you know. So I I've done I've done HTML stuff, I did CSS, I did PHP, I did you know, I took that C sharp class. I I took a C plus class too. That, oh, yeah. that nearly killed me. Oh that yeah, that's tough. That was, but there is a new flavor of C plus plus that's pretty cool called it? Rust, yeah. Okay. Right now, so I work at Utah Valley University. Mm-hmm. I can take classes for free. That's my favorite perk. Oh that's perk. awesome. My absolute favorite perk. And so I've taken pretty much all the digital media classes that I can. My degree was in digital media with an emphasis in animation. And then I fell in love with audio while I was going to school there. And so even though I was in the animation department, all of my elective classes I took were audio classes. Mm -hmm. So I took like every audio class I could. So I've been working there four years. I think I've almost exhausted all the audio classes that they teach. There's maybe one or two more that they only teach once in a while that I haven't quite worked into my schedule. I'm to the point where... If I want to take my audio stuff further, I need programming and I need electric engineering mm, yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. And so I've I've talked to a counselor over there. I want to start taking, I think they call it computer engineering because it has both coding and electric mm-hmm. engineering stuff as part of that degree. So I, I, I want to start doing that, but my math isn't quite where it needs to be in order to take those classes. So I got to do that. But there's, there's stuff that I want to do with audio, but I got to be able to build hardware or, and software to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, I've got these ideas for, 
or some programs, but I don't have the ability to do it. Mm-hmm. And nobody else has built a tool that does that. And so they're all kind of, they're all uh, audio restoration type things. Yeah. I thought about, you know, getting a various degrees in this or that or the other. I just, you know, I started out in school back in the 90s, and then I just kind of got into this. And, you know, I've got 20 years experience now doing programming. So as far as the industry is concerned, they don't care. It's the fact that the other stuff that I do, they do care, but that stuff doesn't pay the bills. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's, it's the programming stuff I want to do. Yeah. And, and if I was of the right mindset, I would just, you know, pick up a book, read through, you know, try to figure it out on my own. Yeah. And I've tried to do that, but it's it's a different language. And I find mm-hmm. that uh, with certain types of things, trying to teach myself, I just fall on my face over and over again. Yeah. But if I get some formal instruction that I, I do much better. Well, but I've still struggled with those programming classes. Yeah, the formal instruction is good, and it teaches you how to research, and it teaches you how to write academic papers and everything, you know. But you can't be truly independent if you're in some kind of field where, or at least, you know, if you're trying to be a contributor to a certain field and you're in some kind of establishment, they're kind of deciding for you what paradigms are and what you're supposed to write about and what, you know, those kind of things. So there's two different sides to that. But then there's, if you go the way I went, where you're kind of self-trained in everything you do, then you're going to face the kind of rejection that I face, you know, with just about everything. So, <laughs> Well, the one thing I but, do like about UVU yeah. is that it started out as a trade school. Mm-hmm. And so everything they do is very hands-on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never had to take, because I'd already graduated when I went back to school there. And so I didn't have to take all the like core classes, the English and math and all mm-hmm. that stuff. I just got to jump in right to the, the stuff I was trying to do. And it was all very hands-on. I think I wrote four papers the entire time I was there mm-hmm. and they were three of those were extra credit. Yeah. So, and, and I like that. It was very hands-on. It wasn't a lot of theory. I've heard that. So BYU has a really nice audio studio. They have mm-hmm. great recording studios. And so we've had students go over there and use them from time to time. The observations that they make is that they've got all this great equipment. Nobody there knows how to use it. So, you know, they, they're not getting the hands-on. They're doing all papers and mm-hmm. a lot of theoretical stuff, whereas over at UVU, you're getting a lot of hands-on stuff. So. Yeah, and I think in the end, that's more val- of value, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I know they like to hire yeah. our students from UVU for their audio department. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise <laughs> me at all. I've got so many different things that I do, you know, that... I'm very well-rounded in lots of things to where I'm aware of many, many things to where I'm able to take all those worlds and sort of bring them together, you know, in the things that I research. Right. So there are some little niche areas that I consider myself an expert in, but those other things that I'm aware of kind of bring everything together, you know, and make it more... I don't know what the word is, just, I think, well-grounded in reality, you know, where as other researchers and things, they may only be, you know, conversant with certain facts in the area that they're a specialist in, you know. They they and talk so, about that at a, uh, so I, I work in the library, mm-hmm. 
and we've got this great stained glass window. It's like 200 feet long that they just unveiled a couple of years ago. And it's like, it's called the Roots of Knowledge. And it's like, it celebrates human knowledge from the beginning of time off into the future. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful piece of artwork. They took, took them 10 years to get it all put together. As part of that, they, they have a speaker series and they bring people in to, to give uh, lectures in that hall where all this gorgeous stained glass is. Mm-hmm. And one of the professors that they had come in and, and give a, a lecture on was, was talking about how for a long time the schools have tried to compartmentalize and, and specialize people. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've come to the realization that they get so focused on one thing that they can't see the forest for the trees, basically. Yeah, well, that's, that's the unfortunate um, consequence of what's happened in a lot of things that you know, I want to kind of get into a little bit, you know, is that's, that's one of the primary factors, I think, is they can't, they're focused on these certain trees and they have no idea what's going on in the forest. They can't see it. Yeah. So they, they were trying to, they were trying to make the argument that, you know, let's, let's not be so focused. Let's, let's work with other departments. Let's expand our knowledge. Let's be aware of what other people are doing. Yeah. To try and, you know, really push human knowledge forward. And that's kind of the way that the brain works in some ways is with those kinds of associations that spark this and spark that. And then you start to, you know, the neurons start to make connections between things that seem to be not related. Right. You know, and there's lots of things going on in computer science that have to do with that kind of thing, you know. And so it's really neat the kind of age that we live in, but there's lots of consequences for the way academia is. Right. Especially in our church, there's lots of consequences of that. So you sent me all the, you know, those papers uh, yeah. that you'd written. I started reading, they are long, first mm. of all. So I only got partway through the first one that you sent me. The first one I opened, which was uh, the Zodiac and the Alphabet stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? You get into well, as far as that stuff that's, goes? That's part of the, I mean, the foundation of some of the things that are really important because, yeah, if I can, I don't want to take too much time on any particular thing, but the idea there is that, you know, our writing systems have gone through evolutions, you know, starting out with the pictographic stuff and the 3D types of things that they had in Mesopotamia, like tokens, they called them, or they, they call them like they would use they use them for money or for to keep track of things, you know, and so they would start to draw pictures of those tokens, you know, and they'd have other things that they would keep track of, you know, tallies and this, that, and the other, and they had maps of kind of the the stars and this that and the other you know and they would keep track of the paths of different astronomical bodies and so forth and so on like the path of the moon and the path of the sun and then they would in those different paths they would imagine different patterns you know, of those stars so they would create constellations out of those patterns and so since there's the ecliptic you know and so the moon, the path of the moon is what each or each station of the moon on a different day is one of those zodiacs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so 
as they would go around in a circle in that zodiac, they would have all these different constellations, you know, for, for each station of the moon in a 30-day period. So there were, or at least the some of the early theories going back to like the 1950s and so forth and so on, they discovered these, they call them abecedariums. Okay. And they're like, you know, they would... Like scribes in the ancient times would like, you know, practice their writing skills and so forth. And they found some of those from a city called Ugarit that had like 30 characters or so on this chart, you know, of of the alphabet. And so these scholars kind of matched this up with, or they're like, well, maybe that's maybe these these symbols have something to do with the lunar zodiac or these set of 30 symbols, right? So following that, I realized, because this guy was, he had the hypothesis that those 30 symbols were, you know, one, there was one for each day, right, of okay. this zodiac. So it's kind of like a calendar, right? And so, but there was a lot wrong with his idea when I checked into it. His basic hypothesis however was correct i think and so i i took his basic hypothesis but i went a different direction because i dug into what what they called the proto-alphabet or the proto-cyanitic and this is a set of egyptian hieroglyphics and i've taken all of those in that set and matched them up one for one for every one of these constellations and so I've demonstrated that the original, what has come to be like the Hebrew alphabet and all these alphabets are direct descendants of this alphabet that was made out of these 30 Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? Okay. And so the significance of that is very deep because, for example, in the Book of Mormon, you hear about Reformed Egyptian, right? right. What is Reformed Egyptian? Reformed Egyptian is probably the cursive kind of Egyptian that's called hieratic, and there's another kind that's called demotic. But the point of that is is they're, they're Reformed in the sense that they were changed to make them easier to deal with, you know, because they're more cursive, so they were easier to write than the regular hieroglyphics. Well, in the evolution of the writing systems, they found that if they used just a certain set of characters and assigned each one, you know, a a sound, that it was much easier to deal with, because then you could just... Well, actually, they were only dealing with the consonants, Okay, you know. And so they assigned each one of those characters a consonant. And as time went on, this evolved into the Hebrew alphabet, the Greek alphabet, and then we get our Latin alphabet. And so if you say, what's Reformed Egyptian? Well, our own our own system is a set of Reformed Egyptian because it's descended from this set of Egyptian characters. Oh, very fascinating. Yeah. So with that, we have the concept of what's called iconotrop, and that means, or, or adaptation, where you take a, an existing set of symbols and you assign them a new usage. You recycle this existing thing and it gives you a new set of you come up with a new set of usages for these older symbols. And so that's precisely what Reformed Egyptian was, was taking existing symbols and using them in some new way, you know, that 
or at least in restorationist belief, you know, with the Nephites, that's what we believe they did, you know. So they probably took something like the hieratic and kind of modified it further. But in our own religion, we've got a lot of controversy going on on the internet and so forth, and people, and this kind of gets into my own personal story that I won't really get real deep into, but, you know, you had my brother Rob on here, and I think you had Mike on here. Yeah, a while ago. Yeah, and we grew up in a small area of West Salt Lake County in Magna, and, you know, it was a rough area, lots of people, you know, bullying us. Rob got into martial arts, then he got me in to come check it out, and I got into it. And um, this was when I was about, f I think I started when I was 14 years old, so it's going on what? It's going on 30-something years, 34 years or something now. Anyway, point of it is, is we encountered a, a person that was very, he was an ex-Mormon, and he was very extremely anti. And so at a very early age, I was thrown into what nowadays they call a faith crisis, or what we're encountering now in the church with lots of people encountering things on the internet that disturb their faith. So that happened to me in a very early age in the 1980s. And so I had all that time to kind of rebuild everything and become converted based off of, you know, real conversion, but also knowing what a lot of people come to know now that are complexities of our history and our this, that, and the other that's going on. You know, people that aren't grounded with a testimony and conversion by the Holy Ghost can fall prey to that kind of stuff. But... I am one of the type of people that don't want people to just be taken advantage of and, you know, by people that are enemies and critics. And so I aim to come up with answers that will stand, you know, that will stand up to be able to deal with those kinds of things that they try to put out. And the problem is, is that a lot of those things that they put out are true. The, they just put a twist on it. Okay. And so that twist that they put on it is enough to destroy faith. And so we live in a situation in life, and we're told this in the Book of Mormon clearly and in other scriptures, that we basically live in a simulation, like they talk about in transhumanism sometimes, mm -hmm. how some people believe that like we're living in some kind of a big computer simulation or something, driven by who knows what alien beings or whatever, but in the restorationist point of view, this is naturalistic, and we are in a situation where we have what's called the veil, right? right. And this is, this, whatever it is, I don't know, but it's a naturalistic thing, and we don't see all of reality, we can't detect all of reality, it doesn't make it less real, it just means it can't be detected. And so in science, they have what's called dark matter, and they can detect it through gravitation and so forth on on galactic scales. And so it's not like they don't know it's there. They absolutely know it's there. They can't figure out what it is because it doesn't it doesn't interact with the electromagnetic force. You know, electromagnetic force is what we see 
from the sun and everything that puts out light and that interacts with atoms and everything with magnetic forces and all the bonds and all the atoms and everything electromagnetic bonds are what makes everything solid you know like so that you can't just your hand just can't go through something well that's because of the electromagnetic bonds the fact that you can see something is because of electromagnetic bonds and that cause the light to reflect off of them and hit your eye And so if you have a kind of matter that not only doesn't react with electromagnetism to the degree that it doesn't react with those bonds, but also doesn't react with magnetism or doesn't react with electricity or any of those forces, then you have the type of matter that maybe only reacts with such things like gravitation and maybe in some cases the weak nuclear force but the point of all that is is that there really is matter out there that we can't interact with and we can't detect by normal means that's science right and so for them to tell us that it's idiocy for us to believe in you know such things as spirit well spirit must qualify as something like dark matter because it has a lot of those same qualities in the sense that it doesn't interact with light and these bonds and all this and that. Somehow it interacts enough to where our body is able to be controlled by a spirit and so forth. But I don't really mean to get off on a tangent, but this is the reality of the universe, okay? This is the reality that we can't detect. So there's something out there where... Our life here is being driven by, you know, forces that we can't detect where they intentional and and there's intelligence behind this where we are not able to detect everything that there is to detect. The other effect that this can have is not that God magically hides things, but sometimes reality isn't always as it seems. Sometimes you dig a little bit deeper and reality becomes more complex in such ways that we wouldn't have even imagined, like with quantum physics. On the quantum level, everything is just crazy. Right. And all they can do is describe it. Mm-hmm. and try to describe it in terms that people can try to understand but those descriptions aren't are are just kind of a, an a, approach to truth they aren't really or they're barely approaching truth they don't really you can't really tell what the truth is of um you know an electron being both a wave or any quantum particle being both a wave and a particle at the same time what does that even mean those are just descriptions of a of, of greater reality, and it might mean that it has something to do with the fact that it spreads out like a field, you know, at the same time as being a wave and having all of these and, and a particle. But the po- point of that is, is nobody can tell me that there isn't a big complexity in reality because of such things like quantum physics and chaos theory and everything that they deal with, with the butterfly effect and all this kind of stuff, you know, a butterfly flapping its wings to affect the weather, you know, and cause some kind of chaotic set of cause and 
effect, you know. There's a lot of complexity to where if you don't understand every step of how something happened precisely, you will not be able to describe the whole process of how it became what it is. And so, for example, for people to say, oh, that we can't really detect Jewish DNA in the Native Americans and all the Native American DNA goes back to Asians and all this, well, that's true, but where's the complexity? What, what is it that caused this process to where there's a certain appearance of things as it is now? What about some ancient Canaanite DNA or something that, how do they know that the sampling of the Jewish DNA that they have from Jews now is actually a sample of what ancient Jewish DNA looked like, ancient Canaanite DNA. We don't really have a good sampling of that, so what are you going to judge it against? And they're finding such things as DNA in South Americans that actually originally came from Australia, from the Aborigines. How did that happen? But they detected it because they had a sampling of it. They detected the samplings of the Denisovan DNA in the Aborigines and in the people across Asia. And Denisovans are an ancient human species, you know, that related to the Neanderthals that they're just, they just barely found out about, you know, and they barely found this whole genome of the Denisovans. Another thing is anybody that is from Europe is partially descended from the Neanderthals. People that are from Africa aren't. And that's really telling because the Neanderthals were in Europe. And so, you know, so there's that continuity between the people of Europe and the Neanderthals. There's that continuity between the people of Asia and Australia with the Denisovans. How did this happen? Well, we have a sampling of something that we know that we can test against. Where's the sampling of Nephite DNA? I don't know. But most of them were wiped out by the Lamanites, and then they also mixed in with them. And they probably mixed in with a lot of the Jaredites that were left over, too. And then, who did these people mix with? And so it it goes on and on. And then there was these bottleneck events where everybody was wiped out by smallpox and everything like that. So... There's these complexities that cause people to not take into account the whole picture, not have all the data, and then they go and they say, oh, well, look, this didn't turn out to be true. Oh, really, what is it that you really have? You don't really have anything. You've got lack of information. How are you going to say that lack of information is proof positive of what you say it is? Lack of information means that you lack it. So to say that it's missing, that can actually go either way. And so, like in the case of cement in the Book of Mormon, in the day of Heber J. Grant, so he was confronted by a man that said, I know that there's no cement. Your Book of Mormon says there's supposed to be cement, and I don't see any cement, so I know it's false. And Heber says to him, he says, I don't care if it's in my grandson's generation, my grand great-grandson's generation, we will find cement. Now it's one of the most plentiful substances in Mexico that they know of in places like Teotihuacan and mm-hmm. all those. And so to have 
this nonsensical statement that, oh, well, we don't find it yet, so therefore it doesn't exist. That's just plain denialism. That's taking something and denying based off of a certain data set that you have at a certain time. That's not the data set that you're going to have in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. Certainly. But I I only say this kind of stuff, you know, to try to generalize and try to whittle down what I'm saying. A lot of the different areas that I study intersect. One of the biggest things that are causing people to lose faith is the Book of Abraham issue. Okay. And that's one of the things that I have really delved into the most because I think it's of the most value because I'm not satisfied with the answers that people, even well-meaning people that have tried to defend the church, I'm not satisfied with the answers that they've tried to come up with. And the reason is, is you can have a spiritual, I think I said this type of thing already, you can have a spiritual conversion to something, but people that don't have that spiritual conversion, they might need something more. And I'm not saying that it's proof, but it might give it might give them something to hold on to until uh, that will give them a reason to come around to actually giving the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and the rest of our scriptures and the rest of our claims in our church, you know, or it might give them you know a reason to actually decide to take it seriously and get a testimony about it by the Holy Ghost, you know. And so we're not looking for proof because I just don't think that in this situation that we're in, we're not really offered proof. Right. But to, uh, Joseph Smith did say that people would prove him a prophet through circumstantial evidence is what he called it. I don't know if that's the best term to use, but really the point of it is, is it's the kind of evidence that is still evidence, but it's not the smoking gun kind of evidence. Right. The BYU scholars have found, you know, a place name in uh, in the area that they believe that Lehi and his party were going through in Arabia. And this place name is, you know, they usually spell things with just consonants in the Semitic languages. So it's N-H-M, and the pronunciation in the Book of Mormon is Nahum. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they say, well, here's this thing in the real world that's in the right place that we would expect that coincides with the Book of Mormon. And it's absolutely true that it makes sense that it coincides. And then the anti-Mormons say, oh, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the fact of the matter is, it's really a piece of evidence that really actually is in the real world that kind of cements some something in the Book of Mormon. Right. And so with the Book of Abraham, we're hoping for the same types of things to emerge, you know, and they have. Primarily with the Book of Abraham, what we have is we don't really have, just like we don't have the plates of the Book of Mormon, we don't really have a an Egyptian manuscript that has the content from the Book of Abraham in it. Right. Right. And so that's that's where we're lacking in proof, but we wouldn't expect to have proof. What we do have is we have a thing called the Hor Papyrus. Some scholars have called it the Book of Breathings, or the Sensen is what it's called in Egyptian. And to breathe in Egyptian it has lots of different meanings. It doesn't just mean to breathe, but it means it means fellowship. 
It means coming together with someone, you know, and, and living with them, living, having a sociality with them. And so it's the idea of having a sociality with, you know, the gods after death, basically. Okay. And so the idea here is that going back to the alphabet, Joseph Smith called the Hor papyrus the Egyptian alphabet. Why? Because he used it as a list of characters that were alphabetic, just like any characters in any language are alphabetic, right? Lots of these characters in Egyptian are alphabetic. But the Egyptian alphabet was used in such a way, in this case, as section markers. So if you can think of the way that we use our alphabet or our numbers in an outline, for example, we will use the letter A, B, C, D, E, F to outline things and say this is section 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and we're using these characters to outline these things and we're pointing to these sections by way of these characters. Okay, well, because this was an Egyptian alphabet or a ordering of characters in a certain ordering, just like our alphabet has a certain ordering, it seems from the evidence the original papyrus that had the content of the Book of Abraham used this alphabet to outline sections. Okay. Okay. This custom alphabet in this papyrus. And so the indicator for that is that, for example, in the Bible, we've got something called acrostics. And in certain sections of Psalms and so forth and so on, they'll use Hebrew letters to map to certain paragraphs and so forth in the scriptures. And they're, they're basically like verse numberings. And so the same thing happened in this case, except in the acrostics in the Psalms, you've got a certain letter and the section of text that it marks, so to speak, or that it proceeds, starts with the same letter, right? So it's got this linkage between the letter that is this, this marker for the section and the word that it's paired with. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the letter Aleph, which is the equivalent of our, well, it's not really the equivalent, but it kind of maps to our letter A right. or to the Greek alpha. Okay. They would use Hebrew words that start with alpha to, to pair up with that character. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So with the Egyptian alphabet, in the book of Abraham, what happened was, is instead of a system where the matching or the pairing was done with something that starts with the same letter, these were also little pictures of things, right? And so those little pictures had a certain theme attached to them. And the easiest one to point out to try to make this point is the first letter in the book of breathings. It's the Egyptian letter I, okay, but it's also a picture of a reed, okay, or like, you know, the the reeds that grow along the sides of a river, right, right. like the papyrus reeds, mm-hmm. okay. Well, Joseph Smith paired that up with the section of the Book of Abraham that says, in the land of the Chaldees, I, Abraham, blah, 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 right? He specifically matched it up with the phrase, land of the Chaldees, and so you're like going, you know, the anti-Mormons look at that and go, oh, look, he couldn't, tra- he tried to translate the character, this one letter 
into this whole thing, land of the Chaldees. Mm. Well, land of the Chaldees points to the ancient land of Sumer. That was another name for it. Their own name for their land is the land of reeds. Oh, well, there you go. Do you see what happened there? Yeah. That's called a pun. Yeah. (laughs) That's a visual pun. Okay. And so... The, in other words, you've got puns and thematic pairings between this character and this section. Okay, It didn't have anything to do with this character containing. It does not contain the content. It has a relationship with the content. Right. It has an artistic relationship with that content. That's why they chose that as a marker for that section of text. And it had nothing to do with this thing, Joseph Smith imagining that this thing contained all of this information. That's absurd. As a computer programmer, we use variables. Right. Or, right, you know everything about variables and how they work, right? Right. Same thing in mathematics, right? When you're doing algebra... You don't have a character with meaning when you're using variables until you assign it a meaning. Right. Until you assign it a value. So they take these things so literally, or at least the anti-Mormons do, and the Egyptologists in the church take them so literally that they missed the forest because they're looking at the tree. Right. Right. Yet Hugh Nibley and Michael Rhodes look at these pictures for the Book of Abraham, like in the round thing. It's called the hypocephalus or hypocephalus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It's facsimile, too, of the Book of Abraham. The middle character in that picture is supposed to be Kolob. Okay. Okay. And it's figure one. The Egyptian designation for that is Knumra. Okay, well, what does Knumra have to do with Kolob? Nothing. Just like X has nothing to do with the number two. Okay. Okay, it depends how you use it. What does the reed have to do with Land of the Chaldees? Nothing. It doesn't contain the message Land of the Chaldees. When you pair them together and you create a relationship with them, then they start to have a relationship and then... There's sense that make that's made out of it. But that pairing is the thing that is the critical thing that makes it have sense, right? And so the mistake that there that the current scholars in the church are making, like Brian Hauglid that just put together the latest Joseph Smith papers volume with, with Robin Jensen, who is another historian. Here we have Brian Hauglid that is not even an Egyptologist. Okay, and they criticize me that I'm a computer programmer. Brian Hauglid, he's into medieval studies and Arabic. That's his thing. Yet here we have Brian Hauglid and Robin Jensen who have, these people have no, nothing. And the critics that they deal with like Dan Vogel and Brett Metcalf. These people have nothing, they have no background in Egyptology at all, yet they're criticizing me because I'm self-taught in Egyptology. Okay, but these people, they, you know, in the church we have, there's various scholars out there. Oh yeah, and here's the other irony, the the group called Fair Mormon that used to be called Fair, I used to be a part of that group. And they rolled out the red carpet for this guy named William Scriver. 
back in 2010, and I was there to film his presentation. Well, he had this idea about the Kirtland Egyptian papers, which is the set of papers that I'm talking about that have all of these pairings between the Egyptian characters and the English content, that basically Joseph Smith's working papers. Okay. And so the, the idea that they've had for these papers all along is just wrong because they try to blame it on W.W. Phelps, who was a scribe of Joseph Smith. Right. And so they try to put the responsibility for these papers on him when he was a part of it. And he was just, he was actually called of God, just like Joseph Smith. So they were part of a translation council. Mm-hmm. Just like if you're in a ward council, it's not just the bishop receiving revelation. You right. know, it's yeah. everybody that's involved in that council. So the fact that Joseph Smith's scribes had something to do with these revelations, it's not surprising that they would have something to do with these revelations. But it's also ad hominem to say that they couldn't have revelation and have input to these things, just like Joseph Smith. But anyway, the point is, is they try to say that Joseph Smith was not responsible. Yet most of the people that are making these charges don't have any training in Egyptology. And the ones that do are making all of these strange arguments when if they would just use the same exact thing or the same exact way that they try to defend other parts of the Book of Abraham, like those pictures I was talking about, the facsimiles. Right. Hugh Nibley and Michael Rhodes went through a lot of effort to dive into whatever system it was that was in play with those pictures to try to figure out what relationship they had with the English text that accompanies them. And so if you pair up those explanations with those, it's like a Rosetta Stone. You start to see the system. And just like I said, Kanumra has nothing to do with Kolob. But Kolob was paired with the the picture. Okay, what does that have to do? Well, Kanumra is the Egyptian god of creation, and the English for that section of the Book of Abraham is Kolob, the first creation. Okay. Right? Do you see the thematic linkage? Okay, so this goes back to the same exact system of puns between symbol and content that was paired with it. And so you have this original thing that was out there in ancient times during the time of, you know, the Romans and the Greeks in Egypt, where somebody decided to take this Egyptian alphabet and enumerate the sections of the Book of Abraham material with those symbols. And they chose those symbols because of the pun relationships and the thematic relationships. Okay. okay. And so that's the exact same system that we find between the English pairings in the facsimiles. And so they're expecting the wrong things. And so how did I crack this? I cracked this because I discovered the connection between the reed symbol and the land of reeds accidentally one day. Okay. And then I started going working backwards and saying, well, what's going on here? And then you could generalize, you know, and I'm analytical. I'm a computer programmer. Same exact credentials as the guy that they rolled out the red carpet for in 2010. But yet they won't listen to me and they they treat me like garbage. So there's a lot of Egyptologists in the church that 
have similar opinions to these other people that like Phelps was responsible for the Kirtland Egyptian papers and so forth and so on. But none of them, the, the Robin, Robin Jensen and Hauglid have put together now the idea in the new Joseph Smith Papers volume that Joseph Smith was responsible for the pairings between the Hor Papyrus characters and the English Book of Abraham content. And that's absolutely true, so we need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. The point is, is they now believe, like critics, that Joseph Smith was a pseudo-translator. And they say, well, he couldn't really do it, but so we need to redefine translation. Well, it, translation isn't always about content. Translation is sometimes about reconstituting or coming up with the ancient context of something, what was really going on with something and right. explaining it. Sometimes that means what translation is. So if, you know, Champollion was the guy that cracked Egyptian in the first place with the Rosetta Stone. Well, if you have English content, okay, let me go to the Rosetta Stone. He had two sets of Egyptian sections, or I mean two Egyptian sections with two different scripts, okay? And these were unknown scripts. Then you had the Greek script that was paired with it. Okay. So you see the pairing, right? Mm -hmm. You see the principle of pairing. And you have to have that pairing to be able to crack it. So Champollion, he made certain assumptions and ended up being able to crack the Egyptian by way of having something known and working from the known to the unknown. Right. Okay. So what did I do? I took something where we had an English text and we had symbols matching up with them. But what was obvious to everybody is the symbols didn't have the content in them. Okay. So these guys are like, well, because they don't have the content in them, that must mean that Joseph Smith didn't know what he was doing. No, just look at them and see what the relationship is. Work backwards, look what you know. What do you know? You know from Hugh Nibley and Michael Rhodes that the pictures match up with the English text and you and they reverse engineered that. Why aren't they willing to reverse engineer using the same principles because or these other symbols, right? right that they're all hung up on. Well, because they don't believe that those symbols are also things that have meaning, even though they don't have the content. They just think of them as letters spelling out something. Yes, it's true. They, they're they a running text that spell out something in that papyrus. Yes, they spell out the, the whore book of breathings, the whore. But, but see, that is just an ordering the way Joseph Smith saw it. That is just an ordering, just like her alphabet goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Right. right. That has a certain traditional order. And so this custom alphabet that probably this this priest named Hor commissioned for his scribes to, you know, write his book of breathings, he was so enamored or so, you know, had such respect for the Jewish patriarchs and Abraham in particular, he identified with them so much he wanted to have his own custom alphabet aligned with Abrahamic content. How did they do that? By this system I've described, a system of puns where it was a game of matching. How can I match this letter with this section of text? What relationship can I make up 
where this has some kind of a pun between this and that. Okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that's the core. That's that's the core of what I... I mean, there's all kinds of other things that I work on, but, you know, that that content is Egyptian alphabet and grammar.blogspot.com. That's my blog where I've got all that research material. I've got an academically formatted paper that's available for download on there that I tried to submit, let's just say, to a certain outfit that decided that they were just going to ignore it, so I just withdrew it. Or so it seems to me, I don't know. Maybe they've got another story, who knows. <laughs> I'm not going to wait around any longer to try to figure out what's going on. I'm going to move forward. Right. Um, but I'm tired of people that won't take research seriously because of lack of credentials as they perceive it. Mm. Okay, I, I'm I'm absolutely tired of it, and I I'm perfectly willing to criticize that publicly. I'm sorry, I'm perfectly willing to say that it's just pure ad hominem. <laughs> Maybe you should edit this out. I don't know, <laughs> but the point is, is the most of the people that work on this stuff are not Egyptologists anyway. So what what is their point? Right. What is the point? I've spent a decade and a half almost on this puzzle. Yeah, so what, at the beginning, when I started sharing my stuff with these people, and they started trying to find fault with what I was coming up with, I didn't know as much as I know now, but I'm a lot further advanced now in what I know than I did then. So the argumentation that they're making about my initial materials, <laughs> so what? You know, but so the point is, is not that they are the people that are important anymore in my life, but you know, because I tried, I wanted their acceptance for a long time, but it's pointless. So now, what can I do to try to get people to have to try to have faith still, you know, and have reason to believe and then try to approach God and get a testimony and get converted to the gospel. And so that's about all I have to say about that, you know, because right. that's what I that's what I do with just about everything that I research is that's the driving thing behind what I do. Okay. Well, that's great. I I had a my mission was in Texas. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of people arguing against us there. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh so I was exposed to a lot of it there. Yeah. My mission president was like, oh, just don't even look at that stuff. But I looked at all of it. And uh, that didn't, I never once came across something that would, like shook my faith then. But right. like a couple of years ago, I did come across something that, because I've never shied away from looking at that stuff. And I, I came across something a couple of years ago. I honestly, at this point, can't remember what it was. Mm. But I, I, was, I was pretty shooken up for well, maybe a month or so. Mm -hmm. And then I just, you know, through reflection and, and some things, I was able to, to, to resolve whatever concern I had. Mm -hmm. But, but that was a rough month. Tell you what. And yeah. uh, to tell somebody that they should just go pray and read the book of Mormon about it is good advice. And it's what they need to do. But as missionaries, or at least in my era, we were taught the, what did they call it? Slipping my mind. <laughs> The, the commitment pattern. Right, maybe. right, yeah. And resolving doubts so people could feel the spirit was one big piece of that. Well, to tell people to not go out and look at anti-Mormon material is good advice. 
but what practically can what can be done in a practical manner once somebody has already fallen into that trap what can you do well you can research and come up with answers that make sense the problem is there's a lot of scholars out there that don't know what to make of the information so they just throw whatever they can out there mm. in the hopes that that somehow people won't notice almost like a magic trick the typical thing is like this evasive thing of saying that joseph smith is not responsible for these egyptian translations and these manuscripts to try to say oh we don't know what they are we can't translate them so let's just say that these other guys were responsible that's like a magician saying don't pay attention to what i'm doing right. let's just ignore this and let me give you this story that makes more sense to me because i can't make any sense out of that well if they would just say if they would just stick with it and dig and dig and dig until they come up with the thing that does make sense hmm. it's not that there isn't evidence it's that the evidence is there's a certain appearance and you have to go past that appearance, just like quantum physics. Right. Classical physics is the appearance. You go to the quantum level, dig into the quantum level, figure out what it is that's going on, and you have to go so far as to have something like a collider, and you have to smash those things apart to figure out what's going on. Right. Well, some of these things are puzzles that are, I won't say deliberate, that's not, you know, because that would make God into like a trickster God or something. That's not the right thing to describe it. It's more like God is a God of nature. So when nature in its complexity with history happens a certain way and you don't have every single step figured out and, you know, every single little thing in, in the history of that thing going through step by step to see how it got from point A to point B. It may appear to you that there's no connection between point A and point B. You've got to get to the root of why things happened the way they did from point A to point B before you can go, oh, I guess there's no connection. I guess I'll just give up. It's kind of like the cement issue that I just right. brought up, right? These guys... These atheists tell me science is self-corrective, and science is the best we've got, so we just got to go by science. Well, if science is self-corrective, that means when things like cement is found, then science corrects itself. What does that do for people that were affected back in the 1800s by no nothing, no um, evidence for cement? Okay, so are they supposed to give up? And then later on, they found they were wrong because the evidence for cement showed up. No, that's why we have what's called faith. Right. But still, you should make the best of what you have at the moment that you can actually find and stop making up excuses and trying to do magic tricks to people to say, oh, don't pay attention to that. Look at this. No, de delve into this puzzle and figure out what's going on. If this is really true... Let's find out, some, let's go into the guts of this thing without fear and figure out where we can find something that kind of makes sense. Right. Okay, it doesn't matter that we don't have all the evidence, but let's make, let's actually look at the evidence we have because reasonable people accept reasonable 
evidence when or reasonable explanations for mm-hmm. evidence. So. Very good. We have a portion of this podcast that we call I Tick. Mm-hmm. We ask everybody the same six questions to figure out what makes them tick. Okay. Uh, this episode, we're featuring an interview with Robert Norton. He's a comic book artist. We'll feature that now. All right. We call this part of the podcast I Tick. We ask everyone the same six questions in an, uh, an effort to figure out what makes them tick. So tell us your name and what you do. My name is Robert Norton, and um, I'm just uh, one of the many guys out there that draw comics and hoping to make a living out of it while doing regular job and family life on the side. All right. Tell us your earliest memory. There's just a lot of vague images and feelings that I don't really know which one comes first. One of my earliest memories is my, because I'm the second oldest of five kids and my youngest sister. I remember coming home from school and looking in this basket and there was a baby that was my sister as an infant. And I was like, I kind of understood that there was a baby coming, but I mean, I'm talking, I was in first grade or something. So uh, that's kind of one of my first memories, but there's a lot of just random, just playing toys in my hands, things like that. There's, I don't know. Some people have very clear, like, this is my first memory. I don't mm-hmm. really have one. I don't have one. Just a lot of good stuff. That's just okay. a kid playing as a kid. Sounds good. Tell us a story from your childhood that's influenced your life. I call this the shotgun story. Okay. Any of my family who's listening to this will instantly know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I was, uh, I'm going to guess, 11 or 12, something like that, living in southern Utah, Cedar City, where I grew up. And we lived in this house out on the edge of town, away from everybody. And everyone else was gone. But me and my two buddies went home to our house and we're sitting in the house. It's like a double wide trailer and we're sitting at one end of it watching. I think we might have been playing Nintendo or watching cartoons or something like that. For some reason, I got this great idea. I want to go show my dad's shotgun, which is at the back of the house. So it's a mobile home. So it's long, rectangular shape. So we're at one end through the living room, down a hallway to the back bedroom. So it's a 12 gauge shotgun, huge, especially small young me. And I pick it up and I... And I yell at my buddy down the hallway, Hayden, yeah, come here. And I pulled the trigger. Boom. And so shotguns, I shoot pellets. Right. So it hit the jam. It didn't go through the door because the door was open, but right next to the jam, put a hole right into that jam. And it's a mobile home. So the walls are made of cardboard. Right. And then just peppered the ceiling all the way to the other end of the house. Now, my buddy had got up and had started to walk towards me if he had been three seconds sooner i might have killed him oh my gosh i I didn't expect it to be loaded of course of course and so i sat it down on the bed and they come back like what's going on norton i'm like i can't believe this and then we're all like in shock and then they're like when's your dad gonna be home i'm like any minute they're like well the next thing i think i saw was like two trails of dirt flying (laughs) down the road they bailed on me. Yeah. So I, and the way the house sat, there was a main road and then a dirt road that came back to this. So I'm sitting on a couch looking through a window and see this little yellow, yellow Chevy truck coming down the road. I'm like, here comes death. I'm about to die. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and everyone comes walking into the house and I'm sitting on the couch crying my eyes out. And I think my younger brothers and sisters have said, we remember coming in and you're just sobbing and crying. And so I told my dad what happened and he went back and he looked and I explained to him and I saw him grinding his teeth in anger, but he realized that I believe like he has his part in like not teaching me. It was loaded. He just thought we didn't knew not to touch it, but he made light of it and made me feel better about it. And it was okay. You're not in trouble. Did you learn? We've all learned. And then I was 
gun shy forever, but he took me later and put it in my hands and told me to shoot that can that you need to not be frightened of this. Right. So it, I learned a lot of lessons, but I, how a moment in life, seconds change where I could have accidentally blown a kid's head off. So that scared me, but it's, oh, it's a funny story to tell now because well, yeah. way older, but man, did that frightened me wow so normally stories are like oh here's a funny cute thing this thing scared me but life lessons <laughs> that's a good one sorry <laughs> okay share with us a piece of music that's been highly influential in your life there's not necessarily one thing but i remember being younger i started as we've talked about started noticing music in movies and how much it moved the feeling people talk about music is the soul of a film have you seen that clip where somebody took the ending of et with Elliot and the guy and removed the music. Mm-mm. Oh, you should look. It's the funniest thing. It's hor- It's like, this is so awkward. But you put the beautiful John Williams score back in. I started noticing music in specifically Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek Three, And also, around the same time, the score to Aliens, which ironically is all the same composer. It's mm. James Horner. Yeah. I just started mentioning to people, do you, do you see, do you notice how good that music is? And most people are like, I don't even notice. I'm like, as I grew up, I'm like, you do notice, you just don't realize it because you are engrossed in it, but you don't pay attention to the music. So I started buying movie soundtracks left and right. I still have some of them on cassette tape, like just listening to the music. I learned very quickly that not all music was created equal. It's amazing when you find a composer who makes amazing music. James Horner, John Williams, James Newton Howard, just music like that. The last time I was moved by music was the scores to the reimagined Battlestar Galactica by composer Baron McCreary. Like four discs of amazing instrumental music. And I hadn't been moved by music in years. So those movies like that made me pay attention to music. Share with us a piece of media that's been highly influential in your life. And it can be any kind of media. A friend of mine, like, I think we had started, my brother had started collecting comics. There was a lot of DC Superman stuff, and it was kind of interesting. A friend of mine found a pile of books, and he brought them to us, comic books, and just gave them to me. And one of them that I got, I can't remember the number, but it was an issue of Daredevil by Frank Miller. It's the issue where Bullseye kills Elektra, if you're aware of, most people are kind of aware of it. They kind of put that moment into that Ben Affleck movie, and... I was aware of the character, but for a first introduction to a a writer, an artist, a story that's this deep and serious, like it's a big book. I still have it. It's in horrible condition, (laughs) horrible condition. But I was like, this is amazing. This is what these stories can be like serious drama. And it's just on the page and I'm moved by it. It doesn't have to be a movie or a TV or anything. It's just this is amazing. And so it set the tone for a lot of stuff that I like and then just started collecting comics regularly. But somebody just randomly had this one and just gave it to me. And you're right in the middle of a big, long run. And some people are like, that's hard to get into it when it's in the middle of a thing. But just pick it up and start reading and you're in, you're, right. you're engrossed in it. And um, so that specific one led to, I think, a long current to this day, <laughs> you know, interest in writing, drawing comic book stuff. Tell us about your passion and why you do it. Drawing comics, telling stories, very much interested in telling a story, not necessarily a one-off piece of beautiful artwork like we've discussed, but I like to tell a story. I've known people who are like, I'm going to tell this amazing comic story and they never do it. I want to be able to produce something, the blank page 
sitting in front of you and filling it and completing it. Even though there's so much other awesome stuff to do, that's the one thing that sits that I want to sit down and just, I always come back to it. It never goes away. I get off work, I go home and I sit down at the drawing table and just start going. And it's just, I don't know, it's, you either have that drive or you don't. And there's no explaining it to somebody who doesn't have it. I think everyone's got some kind of nerdy thing that they just go crazy on. And if you don't have it, you can't explain it, but it just, this is what I do. This is what I have to do. I have to do this on some level. So not just the drawing, but telling a story and letting somebody have it and read it and judge it and tell me if it's good or bad or whatever. At least we tried. Here's something. Mm-hmm. And I also leave, I like the idea that I'm leaving a legacy, something for my children to look at. They're going to look at all these pages that I've done when I'm dead. And they're going to be like, I wonder when daddy did this and what this meant to him. And I have things like that from my dad. So there's a pause, also part of a legacy that I'm leaving for Mm -hmm. my children. Very cool. Robert, what makes you tick? I know a lot of people, as I've listened to your podcast, talk about their creative endeavors, like I've just mentioned, and that is it. Because I've just recently separated from my wife, my passion is my children, of course, and I don't mean to sound like pretentious. I love my kids more than anybody else in their craft. But that's just heavy on my mind at the moment because of where I'm at. But of course, my children and all that, but just passion of what makes me tick and just, just art and being creative just have to do it and it creates a satisfaction inside me that nothing else fills and again you just have to you either get it or you don't so if you want people to see your work or to contact you or to hire you how can they do that? Easiest way is just on Instagram. I have a DeviantArt account. Kind of been offline for a little while just due to life stuff. But the easiest way is on Instagram. It's Norton12013. You can get a hold of me very easily there. You can see my artwork. You can see what I'm doing. I've got prints available, commissions I'm willing to do. Hire me to do something. That's great. But Instagram's the easiest place to get a hold of me. Excellent. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, sitting in the hot seat and it's been a answering time. these questions. Thank you. All right. Speaking of Hugh Nibley, mm-hmm. uh, his son, Alex Nibley, works at UVU. Oh, okay. He's in the film department. And he recently donated to the archives where I work a rack of 16 millimeter film. Hmm. And it's a documentary that they filmed in the 80s. And they went all over the world and those round things that you were talking about, they got pictures of those in mm-hmm. Egypt and we're talking about those and yeah there's a whole ton of them that yeah have pictures of yeah. yeah so they've got all it's this is all the raw footage that they shot making mm-hmm. that documentary and so they've, they've donated it to the to the archives and uh, we've been kind of working with some of the students uh, of the film department figuring out how to restore that film and they found a place to the the, the trickiest part was the the audio we weren't sure how we were going to digitize the audio because they have they have canisters that are film and that's the 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 video portion and then they have canisters that coincide with them that are coated with magnetic medium and it's a uh, it's what the audio was recorded on mm-hmm. and, and we couldn't took a while to figure out how are we going to digitize that and then the guys that were they were doing the uh, digitization or the, the the students they were at some place like checking out some equipment and they're like well what's that thing there in the back and it was the exact piece of equipment that was needed and it was just this thing sitting in the back nobody would used it for years they were just going to toss it <laughs> so they were able to get over there and get all that stuff digitized so in, they're in the process of getting that that film restored but it's it's kind of fascinating having that all sitting there in their in our archives and see how much it is and it's kind of kind of interesting stuff and and it's interesting to hear alex nivoli talk about how they tried to donate that stuff to, to byu <laughs> and byu <laughs> they they kind of they're embarrassed by hugh nivoli and <laughs> that's too bad there's all these He's got a whole wing of the library named after him, but mm-hmm. but there's all this politicking going on, and the, 
Well, it's kind of interesting to hear the the scuttlebutt that goes yeah. on about that. Well, some people have got a lot of criticism for Hugh Nibley, but the grand majority of stuff that he came up with will be vindicated and it still holds up. Yeah, people criticize me, blah blah blah, but the grand majority of it will still hold up. It might take somebody writing some commentary on it and backing it up with other materials, but the grand majority of it, regardless of what people try to say about it, it will stand up. Very good. Well, thanks for coming and being on the show with us. Mm -hmm. We've had a good time. And remember, you can give us a call at 801-SKETCH-1. That's 801-753-8241. And just give us a call. We'd like to hear what you think of the show. We'd like to hear stories that you want to share, funny stories, spooky stories, you know, whatever whatever you feel like sharing with us. And again, we're at pleaseleavemessage.com. We're at Message Podcast on Instagram. And you can email us at pleasepodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.